and welcome to the North Decatur Presbyterian Church Sermon Series. We're a PCUSA congregation in Decatur, Georgia. If you'd like to find out more about us, go to ndpc.org or just come by and visit. Here's this week's sermon. This reading this morning is from Matthew's Gospel. It's from the fifth chapter. I have a question for you before I begin. Are any of you made of salt? Are any of you made of light? Well, listen to the story. Listen to what Jesus says to you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. But you are the light of the world. A town that is built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it underneath a bowl. Instead, they put the lamp on a lampstand, and it gives light to everyone in the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds And glorify God, who is in heaven. The word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Nowhere is the mature spirituality that we've been talking about better articulated than in the Beatitudes. When Jesus speaks to the disciples, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you. Even after 2,000 years, this way of claiming blessings in life remains countercultural, even counterintuitive. In a world that rewards self important people who relentlessly deny their own flaws and claim to be better than the rest of us, the way of Jesus appears foolish. But to you, to you who have been shown the underlying unity of each person and of the whole creation, where others see foolishness, you see God's love, reconciling and mending and healing all things. So after Jesus speaks these beatitudes into the world, he says that if you claim these as your blessings, if you you make this life your life, you will be salt and you will be light. You will become essential to the world and to the people around you. Marie said it. Salt is essential. It, it preserves the food that we have so we can, we can eat it longer. It, it releases the flavor of everything that it touches. Light 
is essential to the world. Plants convert it to energy. It feeds the whole planet. Light bounces off your retina and reveals the beauty of creation. Salt and light are are not themselves the source of good in the world, but only in their presence does the world become savory and nourishing and beautiful. And you who embrace the spirituality of the Beatitudes, you are salt and you are light. You're not the source of good in the world, but in your presence, the world comes alive. I think when a person reaches a place of spiritual maturity, I think other people can tell. There's something about their presence that you notice, that you can see. In the Orthodox Christian tradition, there is an expression called bright sadness. In a person, bright sadness is someone who has seen the worst that life has to bear. It's pain and it's grief, loss and sin. And this person has integrated that into their being. They know brokenness. It's part of who they are, just as it is in the world around us. But by grace, that person finds a deeper joy that shines in the sadness. I think about John Lewis. I think about this guy, Desmond Tutu. I can also think of dozens of people, and perhaps you can think of dozens of people in your life, people much closer to home, people you know who endure intimate struggles with cancer or with mental illness or or grief and retain within them a luminous spirit. Richard Rohr, whose writings we have leaned on throughout this series on adult spirituality, says that a person who has reached spiritual maturity no longer influences people by trying to make them into something other than what they already are. The spiritually mature person, he says, influences people just by being herself. The truth is, right, that we spend a lot of our adult lives trying to make people around us into what we know they ought to be. But that's not influence, right? That's manipulation or coercion. But when you, when you reach this place of maturity, you no longer need to change me for you to be happy. The irony about that that Rohr observes is that that's exactly the place when you become capable of changing others. The power of human integrity, he says, is the thing about you that is most likely to inspire change in someone else. And changing others is exactly what spiritually mature people do just by being themselves. They're often fun to be around. People find themselves drawn to these folks. Children often feel safe in their arms. 
If you've ever been in our two-year-old's class, I know William has been in there and watched Carol Morgan and Ann Topple and Gail and Bill Brown do their work. You know exactly what this looks like in practice. The spiritually mature person is present. I know we all like to think we are present in this world, but so often we aren't. We're anxious about about what's coming ahead, or we're ruminating over where we've been, what we did or didn't do, or we're hyper-aware of what people are thinking about us. That's not presence. When God brings us to a peace with our own faults and our own flaws, when we know we are forgiven and are eternally beloved of God, when we trust that who we are and where we are and what we are doing is sufficient, then we become marvelously present to others. The truth is, being present with someone, being truly present, is the greatest gift you can ever give. Now, it may sound a little bit like spiritual maturity is this place of detachment where you kind of levitate above the world, occasionally touching children on the head. But it's not, right? It's, It's not. It's much more grounded. Being present to others often means being present with them in their pain. And because much of our pain comes from the ways that we unfairly harm each other and from the ways that harm is unjustly embedded into our institutional life, the spiritually mature person is committed to the work of justice. Anger. Anger is often our first response to injustice, and and it can be a stimulus to action, but anger is rarely the strategy that the spiritually mature take against injustice. The things in the world that make us angry, the attitudes and behaviors that we observe in the people around us, are often the things which, with which we have struggled to overcome in ourselves. And you know you don't overcome your own faults by getting angry at them but by seeing them with compassion, by making a kind of peace with them, and and that peace removes their power. That same process, I think, informs the work of justice of those who are spiritually mature. We no longer fight with the enemy, but we overwhelm them with the strongest force in creation, which is loving-kindness. Richard Rohr says that the best response to what is bad in our world and in other people is the practice of the better. It's taking the high road. It's it's, it's finding the narrow gate. Instead of demonizing our enemies, the mature person humanizes them, meets unjust power with nonviolent resistance. We are always imagining a world that is coming, but not one in which my people defeat your people, but one in which my lions and your lambs lie down with one another. When we reach this place of maturity, there's no longer any need to take anything from the world. For the world has given 
us all of its gifts. Abundance is everywhere around you. As you mature, your needs shrink. You acquire less and less and believe that you have more and more. Your desire is simply to live in a way that gives back. And so often this giving back means mentoring others. Mentoring others takes thousands of different forms. It might happen on the Little League field. It might happen in a child's classroom. It might happen as you walk alongside your children's friends. It might happen with a younger parent in the church or with a niece or a nephew or a co-worker. Often you do not choose the people that you mentor. They choose you. Your job is not to tell them what to do so much as to show them how to be. It's your integrity, not your expertise, remember, that matters the most. You will model for them how to hold life's inevitable contradictions in some kind of harmony to show them that there is no necessary conflict between me and you, between inner and outer, between facts and mysteries, between thinking and feeling, between perfect and imperfect, sin and grace, grief and joy. They're all one fabric. As a good mentor, you will, you will help the person that you're walking with be compassionate toward their own flaws but not let their flaws overshadow their gifts. As a good mentor, you will always invite someone to become themselves, beautiful, broken, and beloved. There have been amazing movies over the years about mentorship, and sometimes sometimes by seeing them, we know how mentors have touched our own lives. I I think of Mr. Miyagi in The Karate Kid. I think of Robin Williams' character in Goodwill Hunting or any of the Star Wars movies with Yoda or Obi-Wan Kenobi. You see mentors, but my favorite image of mentoring comes from the Cars animated series. Part of that is because I haven't seen a non-animated movie in a decade, but it's just my life. If it's not your favorite movie series, let me let you in a little bit on the story. There is an iconic race car driver named the Hudson Hornet. The Hudson Hornet sees his career as a champion ruined by a terrible crash. So he disappears out of the limelight, out of public view, and ends up in a place called Radiator Springs, a a town that is remote and forgotten by the interstate highway system. And there in Radiator Springs, he makes a new life. He becomes Doc Hudson. It's a life that's defined not by victories on the racetrack, but by character, by friendship, and by integrity. And then by chance... Doc Hudson becomes the mentor for a young race car who is far too full of himself named Lightning McQueen. And Doc coaches McQueen into being a champion just like he was. So then McQueen gets older too. And in the third movie, it's McQueen who's struggling with the end of his career. 
He's always defined himself, right, by his ability to go fast, but he's not nearly as fast as he once was, and the younger cars are getting faster. His life as a, as a driver is almost over, and he's looking for the motivation for one last great race, trying to find the one thing he's missing. He, he seeks out Smokey. Smokey's the old car who was Doc Hudson's coach, his mentor's mentor. I want you to watch this short scene from where Lightning McQueen meets Smokey. You didn't come all this way for a quart of oil, did you? I need your help, Smokey. Yeah? What kind of help? That's just it. I, I'm not sure. All I know is if I lose in Florida, it's over for me. What happened to Doc will happen to me. What did happen to him? You know, racing was the best part of his life. And when it ended, he... Well, we both know he was never the same after that. Is that what you think? Come on. I want to show you something. You got the first part right. The crash broke Hud's body, and the no more racing broke his heart. He cut himself off, disappeared to Radiator Springs. Son of a gun didn't talk to me for 50 years. But then one day, the letters started coming in. about you. Yeah. I'd loved racing. But coaching you? I'd never seen the old grump so happy. Racing wasn't the best part of Hud's life. You were. You ready to blow out a little carbon there, boy? Yes, I am. Hud saw something in you that you don't even see in yourself. Are you ready to go find it? Yes, sir. Are you ready to go find it? What is it? What is this thing that we are called to go and find on our great life's journey? It's the true self. Beautiful, broken, and beloved. It's the self that doesn't rely on ego. 
It's the self that gives itself away just as God gives. Psychologist Eric Erickson calls it the generative self. We've called it spiritual maturity. You might call it a bright sadness. Jesus calls it being salt and being light. When you find it, and I believe you will, you become the person that God made you to be. And because it is the grace of God that is alive in you, you are essential to the world. You're not the source of the good. But in your presence, the world and everyone you meet comes alive. You are salt. You are light.